Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we pause in this time to hear from you again, we've heard from you in song, we've heard from you in prayer, we've heard from your still, small voice that has spoken to our hearts. And God, now we want to ask that you speak to us through the power of your word, which is alive and active. We want to ask, Lord, that you would awaken us to your truth, that it would bring both conviction and comfort, that it would put us at rest and leave us restless, that it would lead us to the foot of your throne and to dirty and unwashed streets. And God, whatever you do, don't let your word leave us the same. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking in Zechariah in a few moments, and your Bible may just automatically fall open to the minor prophets. I kind of hope it does, that it hadn't just been a Sunday thing for you. But I'd like to begin with a few more recent words. By recent, I mean in the 20th century spoken by one of the 20th century's greatest leaders, Winston Churchill, who said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Zechariah could have spoken those same words as he addressed the people in Jerusalem. Let me tell you a little bit about Zechariah, who along with Haggai and Malachi is one of the three, what we called last week, remember, post-exilic prophets, that is, those who prophesied after the people came back from exile. Zechariah's name uh, actually is fairly familiar in biblical circles. There are 28 men named Zechariah in the Bible, 28 different guys. And so even though Zechariah may not be a popular name in your neighborhood, in the biblical neighborhood it was. Zechariah was, according to what we read here, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. That does not mean he had two daddies. It's talking about his father and his grandfather. It's often a biblical way to refer to it, that he was... Uh, Jesus referred to as the son of David. Well, we know he wasn't the direct son of David, but he was a descendant of David. And so it's a reference. Now, this is, we don't pay a lot of attention to that. We just kind of read over it. But we need to understand when we read the Bible, we're reading about real people who spoke in real times about real issues to a real group. This is not something that someone has made up. Here's a very real man, flesh and bone, who spoke in a very real context. Of Zechariah, we find that his name means the Lord remembered. The Lord remembered. And as with the other prophets that we have studied, his name ties in with his message. Because what he wanted the people to know was, in spite of all that they and their forefathers had been through, the Lord had not forgotten them. And in response to that, they shouldn't forget him. Zechariah, the date of that, can be dated fairly precisely between 520 and 518 B.C. If you'll remember, Haggai prophesied in 520, and so there was an overlap in their ministries. They were about at the same period of time. And both of these prophets were used by God to spur the leaders and the people to continue to rebuild and to finish, complete the work on the temple. Now, unlike Haggai, that only has two chapters, and and I hope that some of you went back and read those two chapters. If not, it won't take you long. 
Zechariah has 14 chapters. Now again, you go, oh boy, that's overwhelming. I can't do that. I can't sit down this afternoon. No, but break it up. Two chapters a day. By the end of the week, you'll be, you'll be finished reading uh, Zechariah. And I hope that you have read these prophets because I have only been able to cherry pick from the truth that overflows in these books. Now, one of the things that you're going to find out as you go through Zechariah, and some of you may have already kind of read ahead a little bit, is that between verses one, chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 6, verse 8, there are a, a series of visions in the night, dreams, that God gave to Zechariah in one single night. But here, Zechariah has a night filled with dreams. And when you read them, if you didn't know it was from God, you'd have think he'd gotten a hold of some bad mushrooms. I mean, this is some weird stuff. He's reading about men on horses in the middle of myrtle trees. He's reading about a woman in a basket with a lid, a, a lead lid, a, a lid made out of lead on top of it, of olive trees and lampstands and flying scrolls. No, not flying squirrels, flying scrolls. A very night of vivid dreams. But they were with a purpose. God sent them because he had something to say. And it was very simple. It was this. He wanted to show that the Lord would judge the nations who had oppressed Israel. And had a heart to restore his people to their land and to their place. God had not forgotten his people even though they had felt the heat of his wrath and the brunt of his judgment, God had not forgotten them, nor had God forsaken them. He was waiting for them to return to him. He was waiting for them to lift their head from the ashes and to look back to him as the source of their strength, as the source of their hope. This morning, we're going to look at two chunks of Zechariah's prophecy. One first chunk, it'll be in chapter 1, the second in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, let me ask you to, to turn to Zechariah now, chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and go through verse 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, these prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserved, just as he determined to do. God uses Zechariah to point the people backwards to take a look into the past. The people were not in the best situation. They were beginning to rebuild their lives, but they were in a city 
whose walls were destroyed, whose temple was just barely, who was in the process of being rebuilt, but certainly nothing was normal. And it was that way, it was, it was not what it used to be. It used to be a thriving city. The temple worship was going on. People were coming from all over to come and worship at the temple. There was commerce. There was trade. It was a beautiful city with strong walls that it withstood attacks over and over and over again. It wasn't that anymore. It was a humbled city, and they were a humbled people. And that didn't happen by accident. It happened because God looked into their worship and into their lives and said, this is wrong. And over and over and over, he sent prophets to go and to stand on the street corners and to stand at the temple and to stand in the palaces and to say, this is not right. Your worship has gone astray. It's been infested by the worship of other gods. You don't even recognize God from Baal. You're oppressing people, taking advantage of them. You're dishonest in your business dealings. You bribe judges and leaders to get your way. Folks, this isn't right. And if you don't change, if you don't turn back to what God it has in st- what God is planning for you. If you keep going the way you're going, doom is on the horizon. God will not let it go on like this forever. You need to understand that. And God would send smaller judgments. And the people would real quickly go, okay, God, we're sorry. And God would relent. And they'd turn around and go right back to what they were doing again. Over and over and over and over again. Until finally God said, that's it. You've had the last warning. And he allowed the nation of Babylon, their armies, to overrun the city, to destroy the walls, to tear down the buildings, to burn the the place, and to rip down the temple, and to take the people off into exile. And now they were coming back. But they were paying the price for the disobedience of their forefathers for their hard-heartedness, for their unwillingness to hear what God has to say. You see, they'd lived in disobedience and followed after foreign gods and very generally had just thumbed their nose at the Lord. They had invited this judgment upon themselves, and God had finally sent it. And so now you have a new generation of people who stand among the, the rubble, and the partially rebuilt temple, and the torn down walls, and they've begun to pick up the pieces of their lives. They've begun to rebuild the temple as Haggai and Zechariah had called them to. They've begun to worship the Lord alone. And God has a word for them. And that word is return to me. And I'll return to you. And when they heard that, they must have said, well, here I am. You said return, and I was in Babylon. And I came back, I'm in the city. I've got on my work clothes. I'm trying to help with the temple, trying to reestablish life here. I've returned, haven't I? God's word was much deeper than their physical location. God was talking about their hearts. 
When he said return, he didn't say just show up at church. He was saying, come back to me with all your heart. You can be sitting here this morning and your heart be somewhere else. Just because you show up doesn't mean you're there. Ask a lot of kids whose dad is home, but he's not really there. You can be in the right place and your heart be in a different place. And so Zechariah warns him, don't, don't be like your forefathers. Learn from their example. They refused to listen to the Lord. They refused to repent. Don't repeat their errors. Learn from their example. Because they were swept away in the judgment of God. This, he, he said God's judgment overtook them. God's, God's words, what it says, overtook them. Like the tsunami coming in. It overtook them. It swept them away. And Zechariah is standing there, not in anger, but in compassion, saying, please learn from your forefathers. Learn from their mistakes. Learn from their sins. Learn from their judgment. It doesn't have to be that way again. But it could be. Learn from it. You see, it was only after their forefathers were driven out of the land and Jerusalem was in ruins that they finally came to understand the full brunt of their sin. As a matter of fact, we have in the book of Psalms one psalm at least that we can directly tie to the exile and to their grief and to their mourning. It's Psalm 137. Let me just share with you the first four verses. It says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? Do you hear the pain and the sorrow? Do you hear the recognition that we blew it? Here we are in a foreign land. Here we are, our city destroyed, we're in exile. And our tormentors, our captors come to us. And to say, hey, sing us one of those songs that you used to sing in the temple. Sing us one of those songs you used to sing as you parade in and all the people in the king would march into the temple. Sing to, one of those, sing to us one of those songs about the king of glory coming in. Sing us one of those songs. And their hearts said, we can't sing those songs. Our heart's not there. And they began to recognize the gravity of what had taken place in their lives. They began to recognize just how far they had fallen from where God wanted them to be. And now we're going to push the fast forward button and we're going to advance things about two years. The temple is beginning to be rebuilt. They're in progress. They're, they're, making, good, they're making a good progress here. Chapter 7. What we're going to see here is that a contingent from the city of Bethel. If you remember, Bethel was in the northern kingdom. So there were still some believers who were exiled, who had been exiled by the Assyrians now, 
who were coming home. And they were, they were in Bethel and they were coming down to Jerusalem because they had some questions they needed to check out with the priests and with the prophets. Verse 1, chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regum Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord. By asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I had done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words that the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were settled. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to listen and pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and they stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. And so the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. And this is how they made the pleasant land desolate. While the people were in exile, they had set aside certain days to fast and mourn and grieve over their sin. Now, the Old Testament only calls upon or or commands that a fast be done once a year on the Day of Atonement, but the leaders could call for fast as the occasions arose. And as they were exiled and they realized their plight, the leaders stepped up and said, we need to fast. We need to fast a couple of times a year at least to let the Lord know that we're sorry for what we've done and to ask Him to let us back into the land And so this contingent came from Bethel down to Jerusalem and said, basically they were saying this, listen, for the last 70 years, we've been fasting, telling the Lord how sorry we were for what we'd done and how we'd love to be restored back to the land. Now that we're back, now that the temple's being rebuilt, now that things seem to be going in a good way, can we stop those? Is it okay for us to to quit fasting? Now, instead of getting a simple yes or no answer, Zechariah, as prompted by God, gave them a rather pointed response. He said, you and your your fellows have, have fasted over the last 70 years, ever since the Assyrians sent you into exile. But why were you fasting? 
Were you fasting for the Lord? Was this a genuine act of contrition and remorse and repentance? Or was it for yourselves? Was it selfish? Was it a religious obligation? Or perhaps a way for you to barter with the Lord to get back into the land? When you were fasting, was it for the Lord or was it for you? And when you were feasting, when you were eating and drinking, was that for you or was that for me, says the Lord? You see, just because you call it a feast to the Lord doesn't mean it's a genuine act of worship. Quite honestly, if you'd gotten your hearts right, then your actions would have fallen into line. And as evidence that their actions didn't match the feasting and fasting that they were doing, supposedly in honor of the Lord, he gives them this list. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the father, fatherless, the, the alien or the poor. And in your hearts, do not think evil of each other. You see, even in the midst of the religious rituals that they were doing, this was their life. They would go through the motions. They'd do the right things. They'd show up at the right times. And they'd quit eating from sunup to sundown. They just wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink, wouldn't do any of that. And yet when it was over, they went right back to their old habits, to their old life, doing the same things that they'd done that got them into that situation to begin with. You see, doing what is right, being merciful and compassionate, not taking advantage of the disadvantage and refusing to be prejudiced or hateful. These are the evidences of your faith. That's what God was saying. Not how many times you feast, not how many times you fast, not how many times you go to worship, not how many prayers that you say. If you want to know the evidences of your faith, if you want to see that something is real, take a look at how people live when they're not in church. Take a look at how people live when they're outside of their small groups. What does their lifestyle look like? You see, real faith expresses itself both in worship and in action. James, many, many years later, writes as a Christian and a leader of a church. Chapter 4 of James What good is it, my brothers, he says, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. The forefathers of those who were now in Judah and Israel had given lip service to the worship of the Lord, but their actions, their actions showed how shallow was their praise and how corrupt were their hearts. But the prophet Isaiah 
And the Messiah Jesus put it this way. These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. God spoke through Zechariah these words. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen. How tragic is that? You wouldn't listen to me. Now look where you are. Fast all you want. Feast all you want. I can see through it. You see, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is looking straight at your heart this morning. And he sees through it. Why are you here this morning? Did you come to gather with God's people to genuinely worship? Did you come to be seen? Did you come out of obligation and duty? Did you come because you thought, well, if I don't show up, God might not treat me so well this week. I've got to barter with him a little bit. Why are you here this morning? To get your wife off your back? Or maybe your husband or your parents off your back? God knows why you're here. And I got to tell you, he says the same thing to you that he told them so long ago. If you'll return to me, I will return to you. If you'll turn back to me, you'll find I'm ready and willing to receive you. Well, is there anything that we can draw from these ancient words that applies to us today? There's a lot, but I'm going to try to boil it down to just three truths that I'd like to share with you this morning that perhaps you can apply to your life. First of all, there's this. Learn the lessons of the past. Learn the lessons of the past. How do you learn the lessons of the past? There are a couple of ways. First of all, uh, open God's Word and read it. When we were in Zambia, I'd go and and lead these conferences in churches. And um, typically, we'd have a time for the men and women together, but there'd be times for men and women separated because they normally sit in that tradition. uh, They sit either on on different sides in the church or the men sit in the front and the women sit in the back. And you can argue with them about that. Don't argue with me. That wasn't the purpose was to go get them all mixed up. The purpose was to go and share God's word with them and let his word do the work. But we'd break off from these conferences and we'd have times, I'd take these little bags of Hershey miniatures and I found out that um, that actually increased attendance remarkably after the first day. But when we'd take a break, I'd pass the bag around and they'd, they'd grab, but you ne- <laughs> it was real interesting. They always just took one, just one. And they usually kept the paper because paper is a precious commodity over there. As a matter of fact, one church had a decoration that was created out of, out of candy wrappers to adorn the church building. But anyway, we break into these conferences. And, and more than once, I would have someone come to me and, and, and ask about uh, polygamy. And it was always a guy wanting to know could he marry more than one wife? You see, there is a, a Muslim influence down there, and, and obviously they do practice polygamy. 
And, you know, on the surface for a guy, it sounds like a pretty good deal, right? I mean, you get more than one wife. And so they'd come and, and talk to me about it. And they'd always point back in the Old Testament and say, hey, look, uh, you know, Abraham, he had a couple wives and all these other guys, they had a, they had a bunch of wives. And, and, and so, so why can't we have those? And so I'd always take them back to Genesis and say, okay, listen, let me ask you, let's look, go through Genesis. You look here, did God place Adam there with, with, with one wife or with multiple wives? And they say, well, it's one. I said, okay, we want to go back because Jesus points back to Genesis to say this is what God is, is up to. This is what God is doing. This is God's plan. And so we always want to go back there. I said, now you go back and, and look through your Old Testament and you find those incidences where these men had more than one wife and find me one incidence where it worked out well. <laughs> it didn't. There was always infighting, dysfunction going on or it was, it was just, it was, it was, you'll ne- you won't find a good situation back there. It was always bad. One of the reasons God give us, gave us his word was not just to teach us truth, but it was also to give us warnings. These people didn't do it right. Learn from them. Learn from them. Learn from their past. But there's another way we can learn from the past, and it's sitting right in here right now. You got a lot of people who bone it big time in life. They know where the landmines are, and they can help you avoid them. But what I see over and over again, and not just in the African-American community and not just in poor neighborhoods, I see it all up and down the scales covering all races. People continue to commit the same sins that their forefathers and foremothers committed. They continue to get in the same cycles that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents got in. Somehow, they are so dense that they continue to repeat those same things. And let me lump myself in this category because there are things when I looked at my dad and I loved my dad and I admired my dad, but there are things I looked at and said as a husband and a father, I want to do some things differently than my dad did. I don't want to be, I don't, there's lots of things I want to be about my dad, but I want to learn from the the things that were kind of aggravating to my mother and and try not to repeat those in my life. And quite frankly, to much to Nancy's chagrin, I've done some of those. It's, we fall into those patterns, but we've got to learn from the past because it's, it's true. It's just like Churchill said, if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it over and over and over again. Learn from it. Learn the good, learn the bad. The second truth is this. God is waiting for you to return to him. God is waiting for you to return to him. Go back this afternoon and open up and read the parable of the prodigal son. And I want you to notice something. You may not have noticed it before. You heard the story. The father has two sons. One hangs around on the farm, does what he's supposed to do. Unfortunately, he's there in body, but his heart's somewhere else. His younger brother gets his inheritance early, goes off, squanders it in wild living, and ends up blowing it, no friends, and as a Jewish man is feeding pigs, which is about the lowest you could possibly get. And he finally comes to himself as he's there wanting to eat the pig food and realizes it doesn't have to be this way. And he said, I could go back to my father's home. And if I was just a servant there, I'd be a lot better off than I am now. And so he gets up and he begins the long trek home. But here's what's so neat about the story. It says the father 
saw him coming a long way off. Why? Because every day he was looking. He was looking for him to return. He was looking for him to come back. He never gave up hope. And I got to tell you, there's a father who's looking for you to return. He has a heartbeat for you, wanting you to come back. And he knows what you've done. And he knows, he knows the secrets. He knows what nobody else knows. And he's waiting for you to come back. Years ago, when I'd just become a Christian, I read a book by A.W. Tozer, and I cut out a little, uh, I, I, well, I actually photocopied it and then cut out the photocopy and stuck it up on my door. And, and I've kept copies of it in various places from time to time. And this morning, I want to share with you something that A.W. Tozer wrote that goes right along with what Zachariah is saying, right along with what we're saying this morning. A.W. Tozer wrote this, I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. Listen, he waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, He waits so long, so very long, in vain. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He doesn't need you to make him whole. You know, God God would not repeat that line from Tom Cruise, you complete me, because God's complete already, but he wants you. But you know, you could say that line to God. And it'd be very true. God, you complete me. You make me whole. You give me purpose and meaning. You give me life. There's a third truth I want to share with you this morning, and it is this. God is not satisfied with half-hearted, empty religion, nor should we be. God didn't want us to just go through the motions to just show up. God wants it to be real, both in our worship and in our works. That should have been very apparent from what was said by Zechariah and what was said by James. And I, as I sat in my study and, and prayed over this message... Some questions came to my mind that I want to share with you this morning as we close this message. The question is this. Where is our passion in worship? Where is it? Did we come to this place this morning with an expectancy that we would not only meet God, but that he would show up in power, love, and grace? Did we look forward? Did we long to come? Or was it a chore? Was it an obligation? Where is your passion? And I want to tell you right now, if all all the worship you get is what you get here in an hour, an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning, if that's all you get, it's no wonder you come in here dry and dusty. Do you realize that God wants you to be in worship 24-7, 365? 
God wants to meet you on a daily basis, transform you on a daily basis, comfort you on a daily basis, convict you on a daily basis, move you forward along your spiritual growth path on a daily basis. If this is all you're giving to God, is it any wonder you're getting so little in return? The second question that came to mind is this. Where is our urgency in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? It's becoming readily apparent Southern Baptists who will be meeting this week in Phoenix, Arizona. One of the things that they're wrestling with right now is the decline in baptisms, which is the closest correlation we can get to new decisions in Christ. The decline in baptisms across the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the second consecutive year that uh, membership in Southern Baptist churches has gone down. It's, a, it's never happened before. What's happening? Where is the urgency? Where is the ownership of evangelism? Do you leave it to the missionaries, to the pastor, to the elders? Or do you say, this is mine? These people are in my circle of influence. God is going to hold me responsible for what I did with this circle right here. Where is the urgency? The third question that came to mind, where is our compassion to serve? Some of us will serve if we're asked to serve. And, 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 and sometimes our heart gets right in it. But where is that longing to serve? That passion, that compassion to serve? And the fourth question was this, where is the love the love that shows the world that we belong to Jesus. Is that what people see when they look at Grace Fellowship? A people who are madly in love with God and devotedly in love with one another? Is that what they see? I, I hope they do. What I hope they don't see there's a building that opens up on Sunday morning and closes at about noon. What I hope they don't see is a place with programs. What I hope they don't see is a place for their kids to get babysat or to be taken out of the parents' hair for a little while. What I hope they don't see, quite frankly, is more of the same because that's not what I believe God wants to do in and through us.